Welcome to Spinsters, a podcast where we occasionally have to confront the past. I'm Haley O'Shaughnessy. Hi, guys. Before we get started, this episode contains discussions and descriptions of sexual assault and domestic violence. If you need to skip this one, please do. We're sending you love, and we'll see you next time. So yesterday, October 4th, marks four years since Derek Rose's civil trial for sexual assault began. He wasn't at the proceedings in Los Angeles on day one. He was in Houston, making his next debut in a preseason game. One of the newest members of the team, Derek Rose, looking to resurrect his career in New York. It's certainly not normal for a defendant to miss the start of their own trial, but Rose isn't just anybody. He's a famous NBA player with many basketball accolades. So the judge gave him permission. It's not necessarily surprising for a famous person at a civil trial. Still, five years later, I haven't forgotten any of the details of the Derrick Rose case, including this one, his absence. To me, it represents what we're going to talk about today. A player is on trial for sexual assault, and on day one of the trial, he's not even in the state. He's in a Knicks uniform, playing basketball with his team. Business as usual. Phil Jackson was the Knicks president at the time. He traded for Rose that June, well after a woman filed a suit against him for, in part, breaking into her home and sexually assaulting her. In late September, Jackson told reporters, quote, Derek has expressed that he's not concerned with it, and, quote, it's not keeping him up at night. When asked if the Knicks are doing an internal investigation of any misconduct, Jackson said, quote, investigation is a big word, but he's aware of it. I'm asked a lot, how should coaches respond when this happens? What should the league do? In the midst of getting it wrong so often, what does getting it right look like? We'll get into that today with someone who's covered sexual assault in sports tirelessly and very admirably, Jessica Luther, after the break. I cannot believe we have the Jessica Luther with us. (laughs) Hi, Jessica. Hello, Haley. I am so happy to be here. I'm actually wondering, though, if we could start by me asking you a question, because earlier this year, well before Chauncey Billups and Jason Kidd were hired as head coaches, you approached me about doing something on the NBA and gendered violence. Why? What was going through your head at that time? One of my biggest frustrations is that domestic violence and sexual assault cases go away so quickly. Sometimes even initially, they're not covered or are covered in a very incomplete way. When Chauncey Billups and Jason Kidd were hired in the summer, that's the most uproar I've ever seen from NBA fans. And it gave me hope, but not too much because, like we can see, the season's about to start. And what their cases share with what feels like the great majority of these situations is that they lack follow through. We hear from teams and the league that they have to let the legal process play out. And all the while, the player or coach or whomever who a person said has harmed them is just allowed to proceed as though it never happened. They go to training camp, practice, maybe get paid leave. But mostly these internal investigations only serve as a buffer of time that allows the public to just forget it ever happened. That's what makes me well, I can't say the most mad because everything probably makes me equally mad. (laughs) This facade of taking action really only seems to lead to inaction. It makes me think of Terrence Davis's case 
which most people have totally forgotten about or don't even remember happening. Yes, and so I think Terrence Davis is such a good place to start this conversation. In October 2020, Davis, then a guard with the Toronto Raptors, now a guard with the Sacramento Kings, was arrested in New York City after Davis's girlfriend reported that he had hit her, quote, with a closed fist multiple times, causing swelling to her left eye and substantial pain. He also smashed her phone. Her son, who was one and standing close to her at the time, was knocked down. Davis's charges included assault, harassment, and endangering the welfare of a child. He denied that he did any of this. In a statement three days after his arrest, the Raptors said, quote, Incidents of this kind are addressed and managed by the League through the joint NBA-MBPA Policy on Domestic Violence, Sexual Assault, and Child Abuse. The Toronto Raptors take these issues very seriously, and we will fully cooperate and support the League in its investigations of this matter as we work to determine the appropriate next steps for our team. Okay, Haley. Do you want to guess what the appropriate next steps were for the Raptors? I have full confidence that an NBA team certainly did the right thing here. (laughs) Of course not. Here's what did happen. Davis stayed on the team, continued to play, was not allowed to speak to the media, and the team picked up the non-guaranteed second year of his contract. In February 2021, the district attorney dropped all but two charges, endangering the welfare of a child and criminal mischief in the fourth degree. Those two will remain on Terrence Davis's record until February 2022 and then be expunged unless he gets in trouble again. He also paid $1,000 in restitution. The next month, he was traded to Sacramento. Ultimately, as far as we know, the league never did anything in regards to Davis. He plays on. And so we have yet another case where the legal framework around it is more confusing than it is clarifying. And the NBA's policy invoked by the Raptors in their statement provides little help. Once again, those of us on the outside, media and fans alike, are left asking a million questions. What happened? What did the NBA actually do? What should it have done? Can I still cheer for Davis? Can I still cheer for the team if he's on it? Should I be mad at the Raptors, the league? Should we all just get over it and move on? There's rarely a good way into these conversations, so I suggest we get into it by doing some really basic groundwork. I spend a lot of my life thinking, talking, researching, and writing about gendered violence, but I recognize that plenty of people do not. I'm jealous of all of you. But let's start with the current league policy. First, The basics. In 2017, the NBA and the MBPA, the Players Association, released a new joint policy that covers domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse. So Haley, I want to go over the policy, but not in depth because it's too long. Mm. What do you know about this policy? An embarrassingly little amount. I know that ultimately Adam Silver has the say on everything punitively. That's basically all I know. I would hope that there's some kind of restorative thing in place, but I'm, I'm truly not sure. Yeah, no. I mean, you're totally right on that. So Adam Silver can put someone on paid administrative leave while an investigation is happening, though he rarely does that. He then, once investigation's over, he's the one who figures out if someone should be fined, suspended, dismissed, or disqualified altogether from the NBA. 
The other thing that's really important to understand about the policy is that there is what they call the joint committee. And on the committee, it's like two people from the NBA, two people for the MBPA, three experts. And so if you are punished by the MBA, you're sent to the committee and the committee creates a treatment and accountability plan. They call it TAP, which can be like the player has to go to counseling. They have to do education. They have to do community service, something like that. There isn't really much for the person who's been harmed in this policy. There is a 24-hour confidential hotline that they can call and they encourage people to do that, but it doesn't look like there's an active thing to help victims out. The NBA loves its hotlines. Who could forget the bubble hotline? No one. (laughs) But that's very interesting (laughs) that the restorative thing I'd hoped that they would have had is made up of two people from the NBA who want their image protected, two people from the PA whose job is to look out for players and their best interests, and three experts who I am guessing the NBA hired. And I think it is important to know that the league is in charge. So once one of these reports come down and the NBA starts to investigate it, it's the league that makes all the decisions. The teams can't on their own punish any players for any of these actions until the league decides what it's going to do. So a team is kind of constrained at, at the point that they learn about this. Well, and what if it goes to the criminal level, though? Does that affect the league's decision at all, or are they just separate? They're separate, except if someone is actually convicted, criminally convicted, then the league does have to punish them. I think a minimum of a 10-game suspension, but of course it can be more than that. Um, But otherwise, yeah, it doesn't really... The NBA does its own investigation no matter what. Is that only if they're found guilty or if they're found liable, if they take it to a civil case? Right. The language in the policy says criminally convicted. So I'm actually not sure if they mean if you're found responsible on the civil side, which a lot of these cases end up in civil court because criminal court doesn't handle them very well. So I'm not actually sure what happens if you're found responsible on the civil side. Nothing like confusing policy. (laughs) Certainly could guide the decision that the NBA makes, I think. I feel like most of us think these are new policies, but they aren't. The NBA, like most professional leagues, had a policy like this one dating back to the late 90s. When the MBPA renegotiated their collective bargaining agreement with the league in 2017, they made the policy explicit. Let's listen to Michelle Roberts, the executive director of the MBPA, explain it back in 2014. Our collective bargaining agreement itself specifically lays out various (laughs) policies designed to prevent, deter, and if necessary, punish acts of domestic violence. Under our uniform player contract, players are required to conduct themselves on and off the court according to the high standards of honesty, citizenship, and sportsmanship. And the commissioner may impose a fine or suspension for conduct that does not conform to standards of morality or fair play, that does not comply at all times with all federal, state, and local laws, or that is prejudicial or detrimental to the NBA. That sounds familiar, right? So the 2017 policy is built off of what the NBA has had in place since 1999. And there is a lot to unpack about that policy, because even with it in place all these years, it doesn't feel like it's ever worked. Let's start with the name. It's the NBA MBPA Joint Policy on Domestic Violence, Sexual Assault and Child Abuse. All of those are grouped under the same broad idea of gendered violence and have related underlying causes. The problem is that they manifest in different and important ways. 
I'm Lee Goodmark. I'm the director of the Gender Violence Clinic at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law. Dr. Goodmark explained the problem with grouping these three types of harm, domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse, is that they all deal with different types of relationships. So a person's relationship to their children who are in significantly problematic positions of power, right? Hierarchical positions of power vis-a-vis their parents is very different than a partner who may be more unequal, is very different than in sexual assault, maybe a partner, but maybe a date or a one-time acquaintance or someone you don't know at all. And the way that the league approaches these different entities has to account for those different circumstances. The, The kind of the consequences of sexually assaulting someone that you don't know are going to be very different than physically assaulting your partner with whom you intend to continue to have a relationship and who intends to continue to have a relationship with you is very different than assaulting a child where the legal regime is totally different and the responsibilities for it are totally different because a child doesn't have the capacity to say, I'd like to stay here, even if it means possibly being abused. Dr. Goodmark is saying that each of these cases is complicated in its own way. And that's compounded by all the misconceptions we have about gendered violence. Because frankly, we still get a lot wrong about it. It's not what you see in the movies. It's not a cycle of violence that has three distinct parts that always happens to everyone. Some people are trapped and some people experience significant amounts of control in their lives that do keep them from being able to leave. Some people make decisions to stay. Uh, Some people are not meek and they fight back and they find other coping strategies to deal with the violence in their lives. And we just we have this stereotype of a victim of violence. And the problem with having a stereotype like that is that when somebody fails to conform to that stereotype, they're not deemed worthy of help. That's true of women who fight back. It's true of people who stay with their partners. It's true of my incarcerated survivors of violence who say, I'm, I love my partner. This is not all of who they are. And I want to work through this somehow and who don't want the involvement of the legal system. Because that's the other stereotype, is that everybody wants the police to save them. And everybody wants a prosecutor to save them. And if they don't want that, it's because they're being so controlled by their partner that they don't know what's good for them. And that's simply not true. Yes, my name is Rose Luna, and I'm the CEO at the Texas Association Against Sexual Assaults. Rose has spent nearly two decades working with and on behalf of sexual assault survivors in Texas. And she says an important thing for people to understand is that sexual assault is way more prevalent than we think. So in Texas, one in five men and two in five women have been sexually assaulted at some point in their lifetime. Over 90% of those in Texas did not report their assault to law enforcement. They'd rather stay silent than to come forward. False reports are extremely rare. They are the same as other felony crimes, like between two and 5%. Women of color are disproportionately affected by sexual violence and are less likely to disclose compared to their counterparts, to disclose even to their friends and family for fear of being victim blamed. That's really high for, for sexual assault survivors as a whole, but for women of color in particular. Okay. So sexual assault happens to way more people than we think. It's often underreported. And when it is, it's rarely a false report. And so knowing how complicated this all is, 
that makes me concerned that the commissioner, Adam Silver, is the person trying to balance all the facts and circumstances in order to determine whether to punish a player. When I asked Dr. Goodmark about this, she compared it to a judge in a court of law. Judges aren't universally good at doing this stuff. And they get dedicated training, in theory, and they understand the law, usually. And they have, you know, varying degrees of interest in the subject matter. But before they make decisions about what the appropriate sanctions are, again, in theory, they have some basis of knowledge for making those decisions. And Commissioner Silver is great at running the NBA. But he's not an expert on intimate partner violence or sexual violence or child abuse. Or certainly the level of education that one would want in the person making decisions about what the appropriate responses are. So that's not great. What the policy does get right, though, is that these cases have to be taken on one by one, looked at and assessed individually. It's very common to hear people advocate for zero tolerance policies, which means what it sounds like. No tolerance. Kicking perpetrators out for good. But here's the thing, and this will come as a shock to many people. Zero tolerance policies can do a lot of harm in and of themselves. Zero tolerance policies don't work for two reasons. One is because they don't address the underlying problem in any way. If what you want is punishment, they're very effective. That's not what I want from these policies. I want change. I want to see that people change their behavior. And if what you want is change, firing someone is not going to make change. In fact, because male under and unemployment is one of the factors most highly correlated with the perpetration of intimate partner violence, it's actually more likely to lead to someone being violent. Although the economic circumstances for professional athletes are quite different than say a zero tolerance tolerance policy for a blue collar worker. I think they're also problematic because they fail to take into account the needs of people who've been harmed, who are often financially dependent upon the partners who are then being fired under zero tolerance policies. So now I've told you that it's a problem to one, flatten these types of harm into a single policy. Two, let some dude who is good at running a sports league determine the punishment. And three, that zero tolerance policies aren't the answer. Now what? I just, it, it, I never, I always hedge my nose because I always worry when I say no, it's just like, oh, well, that means they can't do anything. Throw up your hands. That's Diana Moskovitz. I am the investigations editor and a co-owner at Defector Media. Diana, who has done amazing investigative journalism around all of these issues for many years now, does not, in fact, want to throw up her hands. But she does think the current system is not the answer. Clearly, commissioners raining down hell and fury, which we've been doing since 97, 98, it's just, it's not working. Like, regardless of how it makes you feel, if it works, we would have fixed this by now. We wouldn't still be here, you know, after all these punishments and all these suspensions. We wouldn't still be happening. So, if what we have now, if what we've had since the late 1990s or the late 20th century, yikes, as the kids say, is not doing the job, can we imagine a solution or even just a better version of this policy? The good news, yes, we can. But a warning, it will take real work. So much of getting this right, I feel like, starts from just, do you care and does your community care? You know, have you built a community where people care? Because if, 
Like if the research is correct, the biggest deterrent is if your colleagues, in this case would be people in your locker room, think it's not cool to do that, right? We are all so responsive to our community, it turns out, and our peers. Ah, so the easy stuff, changing the culture of the MBA. But how do you do that? How do you stop violence from happening? Diana says the best people to start with are the partners. But I always feel like, Wives could tell you exactly. Like, a, a per, I think um, for a long time, there was a belief that people who are in abusive relationships were dumb or stupid or crazy, and that's why I ended up with them. And that's not true at all. Diana suggested a roundtable, a group of 10 or so partners of NBA players with mixed life experiences. People have been married for a long time, people who are new, married, not married, you know, partners who are male, partners who are female, you know, I like, just talk all with the goal of getting them to think about what actionable steps can be taken. You need a group of people who understand that these cases are not all the same and that the people who are harmed because of them are not all the same. They're individuals and turning the attention to them who are largely ironically ignored when considering accountability for their abuser shows how much nuance there is in these cases. The fact that the NBA is a discrete unit and that each team is a discrete unit offers us a path because we aren't saying that all of society must change right now. Instead, focus on one team and one league. For Dr. Goodmark, it starts with the fact that each team is a community of peers. How do you get the people within that team community to say, this is unacceptable, we're going to hold you accountable, but we're also going to provide you with support so that when you feel yourself getting angry, here, you can turn to me and you can come to my house and you, know, you fire him and that's, that's a one-off. You haven't done anything to help him change or to hold him accountable in any real way. He shows up on another team and nothing has changed. So engaging that community, the team community, I think is really important. The solution begins with asking a question sports leagues often don't. How can we help you? Usually the focus is on the person who harmed instead of the victim. It's entirely punitive, not restorative. It's got to focus on what the person who's been harmed wants and needs. So you have the person who doesn't want anything ever again, that's fine. But you have the person who says, this is my partner and either I have to co-parent with this person or I intend to stay with this person. Here's what I need from you, League. I need this person not to be violent towards me. How are you gonna help me? But you have to shift the mindset away from saying, you did something wrong and we're gonna punish you for it because that's good for our image to saying, you've harmed someone it's important that you accept responsibility, that you are accountable for the harm that you've done. And our commitment to you is to help you try not to do it again. And here are the things that we're going to put in place to do that. Because what happens when people are suspended? They sit out for the agreed amount of time, they serve their suspension, and the league offers some kind of treatment and accountability plan. But we never know anything about it, if the player follows it or if it works at all. What we see is that they return to the court. And when they do, we stop talking about it. And more importantly, we forget about the victim. What Diana suggests doing instead is radical, uncharted territory for sports leagues. Talk with the person who's been harmed. That They would tell you to do it in a traditional workplace, which is like, you know, bring the person in and be like, we just have a conversation. What do you need right now? How can we support you? Couldn't fathom that happening you know, because for a million reasons, possibly including what that person would ask you to do would be immediately shot down by, a, by the entire media relations staff. What if, for example, she wanted a public apology or for the league to keep him on the payroll even if fans objected? 
you can see scenarios where media relations might not agree with whatever a survivor needs. And so that's the rub. It has to be about more than good PR or the avoidance of bad PR. It has to go beyond punishment or a press conference. And so if leagues are serious about stopping violence, they have to do the things that are going to stop violence. Just suspending people and then saying to them, okay, come back now, or even just firing them is not going to stop that if they, if they really care about that. And I just, I don't think they do because they haven't put in the work that says they do. There aren't simple answers to any of this. And I think people want simple answers. They want the magic fix. They want to be able to put a policy in place and say, we've done it. We've answered it. We've fixed it. And none of this is easy. This is hard work to change deeply ingrained attitudes and beliefs, to deal with people's trauma that goes back, not just individually, but generationally. Unpacking all of this is difficult. And to the extent that anyone thinks that any one-off solution is going to change the culture or prevent violence from happening, they're going to be disappointed. You will almost never find black and white clear directives or outcomes when it comes to gendered violence, and certainly not when you mix in the power dynamics that come with big money. Coming up after the break, we take a look in the mirror at the media, the fans, and the role we all play in this. TickPick should be your first choice to buy football tickets because they save fans money by never charging any service fees, ever. TickPick is an exclusive ticketing partner for Spinsters and the Blue Wire Network. Visit TickPick.com spin today and use the promo code SPIN to save $10 on your first order of NFL tickets. TickPick, that's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K is the original no-fee ticket site and the only one you'll ever need as your go-to for all NFL tickets. Don't believe it? If you find better prices for the same seats on another ticket site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. And me personally, I'm super excited to go to a Las Vegas Raiders game in Vegas in their new stadium because there's nothing like a live game, especially a live football game. Visit TickPick.com spin today and use the promo code SPIN to save $10 on your first order of NFL tickets. All right, Haley, we're writers, you and me. And a huge question around all of this is how is the media supposed to handle this stuff? What do you think about that? There's a tough line, which is I don't want to cover this thing I'm not an expert on and mess it up. And a lot of beat reporters, you know, you can talk about what needs to be fixed in a defense. You can get information out of a coach, but this is not your specialty. There's that side of it. And then there's the other side of it, but it has to be covered. You're the one who's covering this team. I think beat reporters are in a really tricky place, but I really want more context on the behalf of the case and the person that this happened to instead of the player. I want more than a stat line at the end of a piece that's about domestic assault. Right. I would be a horrible beat writer. I really think I don't have skills for that, but I have skills to cover this. Um, But I had to learn them too, right? And it's taken me a long time. But 
it's out there and people can definitely access it. And I think they have a responsibility of an ethical responsibility to do so. It hurts when it falls short and it's hard not to feel the disappointment as my own. Yeah. Like Derek Rose's civil trial in 2016 and the complete nonchalance with which it was handled, plus the redemption arcs afterwards, it hurt. I don't know any other way to say it. I can identify that moment as one where I became way less of a sports fan and way more of a cynic. And that's not the way I want to. That's not the relationship I want to have with sports. Let's dive into that case because I do think it's a really good example of these things we're talking about. So in October 2016, Derek Rose, the 2011 MVP, was found not liable in a civil suit in which a woman said he and two other men had raped her while she was too intoxicated to consent. The woman's attorneys claim the men conspired to rape her when she was incapacitated from drinking. She also claimed that they drugged her. The men denied the charges. The Los Angeles Police Department says it is investigating. No criminal charges have been filed in this case. The woman would later describe waking up the morning after with her dress hanging around her neck. During the trial, Rose's attorneys complained to the judge that she was crying too much on the stand and asked him to issue a no-crying order. All three men were cleared by a jury. A couple of jurors took photos with Rose in the lobby after the verdict was read. The judge, after he wished the woman and her family well, joked with Rose, quote, best wishes, except when the Knicks play the Lakers. Rose's legal team worked hard to discredit the woman who reported him, and the jury, ultimately, believed him over her. But there were some revelations in the case that remained jarring. The most well-known, perhaps, is what Rose said in a deposition as part of the civil suit. The woman's lawyers asked him, do you have an understanding as to the word consent? To which Rose responded, no, but can you tell me? The lawyer said, I just wanted to know if you had an understanding, and Rose said, no. Then, almost exactly two years after that, on October 31, 2018, Rose, then with the Minnesota Timberwolves, dropped 50 points on the Utah Jazz. He cried afterward as the crowd roared, and his coaches and teammates hugged and celebrated him. Here is how Wolves analyst Jim Peterson encapsulated that moment. He's got a lot of stuff going on off the court, and... I'm not a judge and I'm not a jury. And to my estimation, he's not been convicted of anything. And but what he is, is a hard, he plays hard. He, he's a gutty basketball player. I asked Rose Luna, who works as a sexual assault advocate, what analysts in the booth should do in moments like this. And she told me either don't talk about it at all or do your homework, prep, and choose your words very carefully. So that answer seems simple and small to me on its face. But I understand that this is a big ask for sports media. When I asked Adrian Lawrence, a former legal analyst at ESPN and the author of Staying in the Game, The Playbook for Beating Workplace Sexual Harassment, the question I love to ask media people, what do you think the media is still getting wrong about how they cover this? Or like, what, what could they be doing better when, when they cover this issue? Oh, uh, let's I know. see. So <laughs> it's like, how much time do we have? But she did have an answer for me. The person reporting the story and asking people questions must have the knowledge base to minimize their unconscious bias, which leads to better reporting. That's easier said than done. 
The thing is, our society is loaded with unconscious bias and the things that hold us down. And so media is just very much a reflection of our society. And we have to grow from all ends if we're going to change it. So it sounds like we're just right back at changing culture, the same thing that needs to happen everywhere. Yeah, pretty much. There's plenty of ink spilled about Kobe Bryant, for instance, and there are the requisite news articles whenever there's a new case involving a player or a coach. But I keep thinking about this thing you said about NBA media in a previous episode of this show. Oh, we're getting meta. Um, Can we get a time travel sound? Okay, so first of all, the media is walking around it. Let's jump out of Twitter for a second. The media is just completely dodging it. A lot of them are. A lot of them aren't. And mm-hmm. if you aren't, thank you. I've probably seen it. Like, thank you. I seriously, I genuinely want to thank you because I feel invisible. I'd like to present proof to you that this was not an isolated incident. Back to Derek Rose. In September 2016, in the run-up to the trial, Lindsay Gibbs, a friend of this show and my co-host on Burn It All Down, wrote in a piece for Think Progress, quote, well, wait, Haley, do you want to read this? Sure. I'm sure this will make me very happy. Quote, while interest in the case has been picking up over the past few weeks, it has been largely ignored over the past year to the point that in a memorandum filed on August 22nd, arguing for Jane Doe's pseudonym to be precluded at trial, Rose's lawyers wrote that they, quote, do not think any media restrictions are warranted or necessary, partly because the media has the media has to some degree lost interest in the case. Ouch. That's an illegal filing from his lawyers. And there's more. When Diana reported on the trial, she went to the courthouse on the first day expecting a huge throng of reporters. The court was even set up for a ton of people to be there covering it. And so you could tell the court system, they, they had this whole thing, like they were giving us tickets with numbers because they thought they'd have to, you know, org. No, there was I maybe... Were there even, I don't think there were even 10 reporters there. We all had a lot of space in the press gallery, is what I'm saying. Wow. (laughs) Right up until the last day, the last day when it was clear that there was going to be a verdict. Boom, that's when everyone came. And that's when ESPN came. And that's when all the major networks came. But um, I mean, I can count on on one hand the reporters I remember being there every day with. It was me, someone from the LA Times. But I don't know if it was even 10 of us in there until the verdict came. What is the deal? Why don't we cover the NBA in the same kind of ubiquitous way that we see with the NFL and the MLB? Like it was really hard to do research for this episode, which was really surprising for me. Haley, what do you think this is? Why is the NBA a black hole on this? I'm I'm not sure. I have a couple theories. Okay, the give first them to me, is, please. <laughs> <laughs> the first is the image of the NBA as a progressive league that doesn't that would never allow this kind of thing. Um, the second is perhaps they're just better at making it go away. The third is small rosters. Yeah. So you know, there's there are less players um, in the NBA than the NFL. One of the gut instincts for me is saying, is there just no really, really well-known high-profile reporter who has decided that this is their beat? But that's really unfair. Because so many people have written about this before. So I don't know. I feel like maybe it's a mix of all of those. Do you think that the 
the idea that the NBA is progressive makes people just believe that they're doing the right thing all the time. Like they get a benefit of the doubt that the other leagues don't. Yeah, that's so interesting to think about. And I mean, I do think the small rosters matter. There aren't as many stories like there. Are, you're not you know, the numbers are just not the same as and especially an NFL team, but also even an MLB team. Um, but yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe there isn't a reporter who has just taken this on in the same way that we've seen with other sports. I'm not I honestly I'm not really sure what the answer is, but. There's also the issue of access. Now, you and Jordan discussed this back on that other episode, the one about Billups. Here you are, again, being smart back then. As a journalist, as somebody on TV, as media, you need to make these connections with GMs and with coaches and whatever, with players. Yeah. You don't want to alienate them, right? Of course you don't. You want to stay in touch. You want to be have a close relationship. But... But you are very much alienating people in the process. Wow, I sounded uh, really angry there, but I was really angry, so that's fine. Well, yeah, I don't blame you. I had a bit of a revelation while talking to Diana, a revelation that connects our previous discussion about the NBA policy itself to how people report on it. Here's Diana and I. I also wonder, I'm just making this connection now as I'm listening to you after reading all of your stuff, and I'm thinking specifically about your zero tolerance piece, which is another one that I constantly go back to. I talk about, I feel like I talk about it all the time. That piece is a lot about how these policies, specifically with domestic violence, don't consider the person who's been harmed and that these leagues aren't really in the business of considering the person who's been harmed. And so there's kind of like, the sports media is almost mirroring the policy. You know what I mean? Like, I don't I don't know how to necessarily connect that, but it, it it's the same echo. It like yeah. echoes to me that like they're just feeding each other in some way. Like the policy itself doesn't allow space to even really consider that person. So when the sports media then is like, well, the framework we have is this policy and how the league will respond with this policy, that's also not giving you a lot of space in which to think through the person who's been harmed because the policy itself is not going to address that. What a light bulb moment that was for me. Diana also told me a story about talking to a journalism class about how she covered the NFL and its domestic violence and sexual assault policy that seems particularly relevant here. Just swap out NBA for NFL whenever she says it. I, I spoke to a college class once and these students, they're asking really good questions. They're like, and I'm like, but Diana, what about how this would make the NFL look bad? Or what about how that would make the NFL look bad? And I just thought, I was like, I don't think my job is to worry about how the NFL looks. Because there are enough sports writers out there who are doing it. And so I've chosen to think about, you know, what is best um, or at least what appears to be best, what would be most beneficial to the survivor. And I've just chosen that. And I don't care if that answer is also the worst piece of PR advice the NFL would ever get. I have made that decision as a journalist because I, because everyone else is going to do the other viewpoint for me. No one else needs it. <laughs> are you in it to do PR for the league? Or are you challenging this powerful institution? Each of us has to make that choice. So let's talk about the fans' role in all of this. When Diana was reporting on the Chauncey Billups hiring earlier this year, she was struck by the people that responded. Because it was Blazers fans really cared and they were reaching out to me and they were like, thank you so much. Like, we want answers and, you know, tweeting at leadership. So it was it was interesting to see all the fan dialogue that was happening 
but not necessarily happening among other national NBA writers. There are absolutely 100% fans who care about these issues and are demanding change. In fact, as Diana said to me, it all starts with the fans. The whole reason we are here, Jessica, and having this conversation, it's because of fans. It's because they, their fan bases are so big and include so many women, but also men. Men care too. Like there's now been this um, growing of the consciousness in society about all this, which is great. But I also think it's kind of why we're here in the first place. It is not because the NBA wants to be. <laughs> I'm sure the NBA um, would love nothing more than to talk less about this. <laughs> right? Um, they're here because of fans. You know, when I, when I think about it in my mind, when I walk through, why are we even here? It's because of fan outrage every time. It's because you're my team. I feel like you're representing me. You're representing our community. And yet you're, you're letting this happen what the hell are you doing about it? As with most things Diana says, I agree. And thank you to all those fans, seriously. But I also want to talk about the other kinds of fans. You know exactly where I'm going. The ones who cheer for men who return to the court, the field, the pitch, after a report of gendered violence, or a suspension by the league for that harm. The ones who victim shame, who deny, who don't care. There is a particular grossness to sports in that it gives people the ability, even encourages people, to cheer for athletes, no matter what else we know about them. And that's one reason why teams and leagues have an obligation to prevent and respond to these reports. When I asked Dr. Goodmark about this dynamic between fans and players, she said a big problem is that we don't have a community consensus that what they've done is wrong. The idea behind creating strong criminal legal sanctions against intimate partner violence was to send the message to communities that we we understand that this is wrong, we are saying this is wrong as a society, we don't want to tolerate it. And that was a, a big push for the, the kind of toughening of criminal laws around intimate partner violence. I would argue that that's been a failure. That people talk a lot about what's called the expressive power of the law, the the, the ability of the law to, to set societal norms. But the law has not set societal norms around intimate partner violence because rates of intimate partner violence are still very, very high. As always, sports reflect society. The law hasn't done the work we wanted it to do. We have to do granular community level change in the messaging, in the understanding of intimate partner violence, in work around patriarchy. Fans are going to continue to cheer for people because on some level they don't think what the people did was wrong. And that's because we don't have a strong community consensus that says this is wrong. Can we just pause here for a moment to sit with that? Fans are going to continue to cheer for people because on some level, they don't think what the people did was wrong. Whew. Yeah. Yeah, it hurts to hear. And we still have significant doubts about the credibility of people who make allegations of intimate partner violence and sexual assault, particularly when those allegations involve people who are high profile, who have money, who have something to lose. And until we change the culture, fans will continue to cheer for these people. And they'll continue to make excuses for them. You know how it goes. There's always the fan questioning why the person is coming forward now. It's always, she wants money. 
She wants attention. She wants anything that a fan can tell himself as a believable enough deflection, as an excuse to cheer without feeling bad about it. So yes, the fans make me crazy, but there's a bigger problem. And that bigger problem is that we've never really tackled the community's willingness to allow various forms of violence, gender-based violence to continue. And that's just it, right? When I see and hear fans cheering for players who have reportedly harmed someone else, who have committed domestic or sexual violence, I see and hear people who don't agree with me that what was reported was a problem, something worth doing something about. The answer isn't to separate the art from the artist or to watch sports divorce from the larger culture. For so many people, that compartmentalization is impossible and it stings to watch other people do it. Rose Luna actually said it very succinctly. Those fans, they love, I mean, God, football and basketball, that's huge. And so they're, they're cheering for that, but also it may feel like they're cheering against survivors. And some of them may. <laughs> I want to believe those of them aren't. <laughs> so what do we want to see from fans? To go back to Terrence Davis from the beginning of this episode, when the Sacramento Kings take the court again this season, he'll be there, suited up and playing and the fans will probably cheer for him. But imagine if instead we sat on our hands and held the cheers, at least for a little while. It won't feel good, but none of this does. There are no satisfying answers for how to fix this. But I'm not sure there is a lot of satisfaction whenever we look critically at gendered violence and our cultural responses to it. Diana Moskovitz says we have to learn to live with this frustration. And we just have to be okay with living with something very uncomfortable for a while where it's just like, we don't have an answer yet. And um, and again, especially in sports where there's so much that's definitive. Like I can tell you right now, everyone who is in the hall of fame, I can tell you who is the number one in points. I can tell you like, there's so much I can tell you. Um, But to just be okay with like, this is something I can't tell you and I can't answer it right away. And we just kind of have to be okay with that for a while. It feels horrible, but sometimes that's all there is. And so, while we are feeling horrible and uncomfortable, we have to continue to pressure for change and accountability. We have to push the people in charge to approach these issues and their policies with the end goal being not good press, but rather less harm. We have to remind the media to do its homework and step into the breach at the hard moments instead of running from it. And we have to tell fans that they should, for once, sit on their hands. I have to believe in my bones that these kinds of changes are possible, and I don't think it's unrealistic. After all, as sports fans, we already do this. We have to believe our team can be good, even when they're not. If we don't believe in them, then what are we doing? Jessica, thank you so much for bringing this to us and all your fantastic work on this story. Thanks for having me. I feel like I learned a lot doing this. It was very cathartic talking to you about this, for sure. So thank you again. Where can people find you? You can find me basically anywhere on social media with the handle Jessica W. Luther. And please listen to the feminist sports podcast that I co-host called Burn It All Down. This episode of Spinsters was written and reported by Jessica Luther and hosted by Jordan Liggins and me. 
Our editors are Alex Ward and Isabel Jocelyn, with production by Alex, Isabel, Jordan, and Harry Krinsky. Our production coordinator is Devin Shepard, and our executive producers are Peter Moses, John Yales, and me. If you or anyone you know needs to talk to someone about domestic violence or sexual assault, we put a couple of resources in the description for this episode.